HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hot Dish Productions, an award-winning modern culinary production company. Learn more at hotdishproductions.com. This week on Meet and 3, we celebrate Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month with an episode about memory. I've always read and sort of approached cookbooks for more than the recipes. To me, they are full of narrative content and narrative value. So Malama Aina basically means to take care of the land. For us as Hawaiians, it's taking care of our older sibling. But I do remember like definitely feeling like self-conscious about it, like being the only one who kind of wasn't eating a sandwich and like didn't have a bag of goldfish or Lunchables. Listen to Meet and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. For those of you with kids at home, I'd like to be so bold as to suggest that you check out my other podcast, Along with my co-host, Hannah Forden, the program manager at HRN, we've created Time for Lunch, a fun, food-focused show for kids. We'd love it if you'd check it out wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to remind listeners that Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit, and we need your help to stay on the air. If you enjoy this show and listen to the other great podcasts we produce every week, please find your way to heritageradionetwork.org donate to make your gift. Today's theme, how to recover from having a restaurant. It's a tough job being the chef, the plumber, the greeter, the boss, the banker, the HR department. Sometimes I wonder why anyone would go into business, especially being a chef and restaurant owner. But there's a ton of beauty and fun and guts and experiences there as well. As a serial entrepreneur, I can say that sometimes the hard work feels worth it, and sometimes you feel like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill only to have it roll down again. So you go back to the bottom and start pushing again and again. My guest today is someone I've admired for a long time. His food and style of cooking and feeding people has influenced innumerable meals I've eaten. Peter Hoffman calls himself a recovering restaurateur. His memoir, which is also a cookbook titled What's Good? A Memoir in 14 Ingredients, hit stores on June 8th of this year. 
It's a healthy serving of great recipes, stories, and more from Peter's 26 years at the helm of Savoy, Back 40, and Back 40 West. And it's about his journey, which of course is ongoing. We spoke this morning for just over an hour, and I felt like we just scratched the surface. I look forward to more conversations with Peter in the future. I'm Peter Hoffman. I was a chef restaurateur operator for over 26 years in Soho, Manhattan, and in the East Village. Um, I ran Savoy and then Back 40 and Back 40 West. Um, And in 2016, I closed up those restaurants and um, spent the last four, sort of five years, um, both doing projects, but mostly focused on writing a book which is called What's Good, a memoir in 14 ingredients. And that's about to be published. Yeah, it comes out here in a couple of weeks on June 8th. That's right. Uh, so let's, uh, let's jump in and talk about the book, and then maybe we'll, we'll work backwards to, to talking a little bit about the restaurants and stuff. Sure. Um, did you know from the beginning of the project that it was going to be 14 ingredients? Was it more oh, or was no. it less? No, it, it that that sort of is at the end of the you know sort of like um, when you're when you're when you're making a recipe in the kitchen, do you, you don't really know the recipe until you're actually done, right? right. Um, so it's kind of the same thing um, with with the book. I knew um, in, in one of the things about the book was is that I started out with an idea which was. Um, that I did want to write these chapters about ingredients. Um, and I also kind of wanted to tell my memoir story, but I didn't know what the structure was going to be. Mm. Um, and then I read a book called lab girl by a woman named hope Jaron, and she's a botanist professor. And, um, I realized that, um, the structure of her book was exactly what I was trying to get at with my life, which, in, in my project, which was moving back and forth between kind of the mechanics of our business and then the passion um, of the business. So mm. for me, that was, um, uh, you know, why I love to cook and, and being inspired by farmers and seasonal local produce um, or ingredients in general and what, and what it moves me to create with them. And, um, and then, as I said, the business, the mechanics the, um, uh, of being a chef or being a restaurateur, um, which is, you know, presents so many challenges all the time that have absolutely nothing to do with cooking. The, the mechanics of the business side, I feel like we're in a, we're in a kind of a, a, I don't know, we're, we're living in a time where a lot of that stuff, like the curtain is pulled back. And mm-hmm. where in the last 20 years with the, you know, proliferation of people following business stories and business radio programs and business magazines and that kind of thing, uh, I think people now in the general public have access to a lot more information about how businesses actually operate than they used to. And there's yeah. certainly in the, in the restaurant industry, I mean, I've been reading a lot of what Gabrielle Hamilton's been writing, uh, you know, in the Times about closing prune during the pandemic and whether or not mm-hmm. she would reopen prune and having to figure out how to address some of these issues like the inequity in pay between front mm-hmm. of house and back of house or you know whether or not like you should have like is a dollar oyster a thing that really makes sense on a menu 
Or should you right. really be talking about how, like, well, we were selling that dollar oyster so we could get you to buy four beers and we're making yep. money on the beer. So why don't we charge $2 for the oyster? And anyway, all those, all those sorts of yeah, pieces. Yeah, all those things. Um, yeah. I mean, it, in many ways, um, what people are looking at, and as you said, more people are understanding is, is that the equation um, and everyone's uh, perception or acceptance of that general equation, meaning what we're willing to pay for rent and what we're willing to pay, what we price things on the on the menu as and what we pay people, all those parts of the equation haven't been working for a long time right. in the restaurant world or the restaurant world in New York in particular. Um, and the pandemic made some of that more abundantly clear than it was before. I mean, you know, lots of places were already um, struggling and going out of business. And um, I um, chose to close the business at a time that I did because in some ways I, I was kind of burnt out on trying to um, rejigger that, um, that equation and um, just didn't have the energy to, I mean, it needed to be reworked and it needed to be worked not just internally for the business, but in many ways, the whole uh, landscape needed to be reworked in terms of what people's perception of, oh, you know, he's charging that much, right. you know? Um, and, um, I mean, you know, I can get it for, uh, you know, only 15, I can get a double thick pork chop for $15 down the street right? and you go, yeah, right. <clears throat> I mean, yeah, we but used to run into the backstory on that. Yeah. We used to run into that at the Brooklyn kitchen all the time where people would of say, course. oh my God, you're charging six ninety nine for a dozen eggs. But at the supermarket, they're 99 yeah. cents for a dozen. Yeah. And you, know? you go, well, what is that egg and what is that chicken and what's happening to the land and who was collecting those eggs and, yeah, and um, how much did the, know. yeah, how much did they get paid and are their families yeah, able to exactly. live and are all they living in stuff. a house and going to school or are they living in a trailer? You know, what's the, yeah, what are all the real costs? So, so some of that, you know, the, the, the farm to table movement brought a lot of that to the forefront and, and that, um, uh, that greater transparency continues and has um, moved into um, the equity uh, conversation, not just the um, environmental conversation. Um, but so the pandemic exposed a lot of that um, in terms of businesses here in New York um, or um, restaurant businesses and, and, um, and also what they're kind of, comorbidities of different businesses were, you know, to use the, the, um, the term in terms of, you know, people who died of COVID, um, you know, they had underlying conditions. Well, the restaurants that died of, um, COVID, um, had underlying conditions as well. And, and, um, uh, it's been huge. It's going to continue to be a huge, um, recalibration. Yeah. So, you know, on your LinkedIn profile, you're listed as a recovering restaurateur. Yeah, I wrote that um, a few years ago, but, um, you know, because I, as I said, I, I got burnt out. I just didn't, yeah. um, I didn't have the energy to um, retool yet again. And, um, and I had lost touch with not just, not so much in my 
interest, but um, in the the demands, I had lost touch with the the love of of cooking and the love of the ingredients. You know, in the way that I was talking about that the book is structured between the business and and the passion. And you said something about the fact that some people are able to kind of structure their businesses where the person solving those issues isn't necessarily the creative person. Right. I, I never, I never figured that out or I never tried to um, construct it in that way. Um, you know, I, I um, there's a place where I really liked the fact that I was this wonderful Jack of all trades mm. um, um, that I could be, the artist and the businessman. Yep. Um, I liked that vision of myself. And, and, and so I, I never kind of was like, well, I'm going to be the, um, the mad scientist in the kitchen and let somebody else run the business for me. And I'm just going to be the creative force. Um, I wanted to be the, the messaging force and the, um, and, um, and the cultural driver as well as, um, you know, coming up with the, the menu items. I mean, in, in time, I delegated lots of those responsibilities, both in the kitchen and um, operational responsibilities, but I still remained a creative director. Sure. Um, but that was, that had, you know, that had its price. Um, and, um, uh, and so that, but I said, I, I, I just didn't want to retool yet again, um, mm -hmm. given the landscape um, of increased rents and um, or the, the rent that I chose to um, pay and um, undertake being there in Soho, given what Soho had become. Yeah. When you um, opened Savoy in, in 1990, right? Yep. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, was that metric the same and prices were just lower? Like had New York already become a place where, you know, what we would look at now, I mean, from like a, you know, if, if, a, if an MBA class took a look at what it takes in 2021 or what it took in 2019 to run a restaurant in New York, they probably would look at it and say it's not a good business choice for the most part. Correct. In 1990, were those metrics already in that in that vein, or it'd be interesting to sort of do that analysis. But I think that I don't think that that it's just that. Um, um, you know, I, I think that that overall the cost of doing business um, became um, a greater portion of of um, revenues, and and um, and it became and and sort of in the perception, and some of it is about. Um, um, you know, you're competing with people who are buying um, cheap ingredients or paying people poorly right. um, so that you can get a $15 bowl of pasta, um, you know, or as your whole dinner. Um, and, uh, um, you know, that, that you're competing with that all the time. So did our prices <clears throat> really rise in a manner that was commensurate with um, the rise in um, expenses. And to that, I think probably not. Right. You know, it's just like, um, I, and I always um, bridled when I, you know, there were certain barriers of, you know, the, there was, there was no entree um, on the menu when we opened in 1990, that was over $20. And so, you know, tipping that barrier was one and, sure. and then, you know, and then you go, 
wow, when you first go over $25 and, and, uh, and you're saying I'm charging 26 for the, right. for the duck dish or right. whatever. And then you watched other restaurants start to charge 32 for a veal chop or whatever you yeah. go 32. Right. Wow. You know, and, um, you know, and, and so I never, uh, I never uh, priced things on the menu with chutzpah. You know, I mm. was never the guy who um, said, I'm going to charge. This is, this is, this is the number folks. If you want that fucking great um, steak or um, you're going to have to pay, you're going to have to really pay for it. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was always reticent because um, you're fighting, as I said, you're you're fighting with the guy down the street who's going to give it for for less money, and um and I never sort of built the restaurant as um uh, as an exclusive house, and mm-hmm. and that's part of it too. I mean, intentionally, um, I never wanted to be that kind of temple of gastronomy that you can um um where you bow down to dinner, um, yeah, and um and so that then people, um accept the fact that it's an outrageous price i want it to be a place to go for dinner right. um, and um and it, so and it was it, <laughs> excellently it was, for a very right? long time it was, right a, a wonderful place to yeah. go for dinner and and in fact a breath of fresh air in comparison to um some of the um pretentiousness that comes along with those higher priced places and um I, we 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 provided a atmosphere um where people could be themselves and breathe and um enjoy their friends and um do it over a, a wonderful meal and a, and a and a great bottle of wine yeah absolutely do you still uh go to the farmer's market in union square as often as you used to all the time yeah it's still <laughs> and in in the pandemic the farmer's market was my um was my community i mean it right. was like i was i was in the house because we were hiding from everybody and we were suspicious and frightened of yeah. everybody um and um and certainly nobody was everybody like the, you know occasionally we we would go to um the supermarket but it was this paranoid experience in the beginning you know in april and may and people would even if i wasn't paranoid people would look at me and go like you got you got too close to me. What, yeah. what is the matter with you? You know? And so the experience in the green market was number one, I continued to be able to get the ingredients that I wanted to cook with, but it was also a place to be outside and um, stand six feet away from people. Um, and that I knew and have a conversation about, um, you know, politics or food in the world. Um, and uh, so it was my lifeline. Um, and it has remained that um, as it's been for a long time. Um, so, yeah, I'm still shopping there a lot and um, and feeling really grateful for its continued presence. Yeah, it's it is it is a really in, in incredible, uh, incredible community. And I feel yeah. like even, you know, e- even though during the pandemic, I didn't spend a lot of time in the city, uh, you know, I was back and went to our local mm-hmm. farmer's market in, uh, in Greenpoint, Williamsburg. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, you see the same people and they're still, they're still there and they're still producing great food and you get to t- chat with them and stuff. And it's really a, a yeah. wonderful, wonderful opportunity. Yeah. yeah. 
What are some things that you, there must be things, even though you're still recovering from being a restaurateur, uh, that you miss about having the restaurant or restaurants? Well, I guess the, the, the first thing that comes up is, is that that was a great community as well. Mm. Um, you know, you, on, on one hand, you don't, you don't pick your customers. They, right. they, they, they pick you. Um, but in fact, the style of your place, the, um, uh, everything from, you know, your aesthetic choices and your pricing, but the, and, and the, the, the feeling of being there and the manner of service and all of that, um, you're setting, um, you're setting something up in terms of what kinds of people feel comfortable there. And so you are selecting your crowd to a certain extent. Um, but it, uh, it, it became such a wonderful, wonderful community of people. And, uh, I'm, I miss, I miss that. I miss having in, in many ways, the dining room was my, the extension of my living room or my home dining room. And, um, walking through and seeing people and stopping by the table and having a conversation or, you know, telling somebody that there's something new and wonderful on the menu or on the wine list that they shouldn't miss out on or hearing that they're really appreciating some aspect of what it is. So it was very much a conversation that I had with a, with a, a very wide, um, community um and so i i, I miss that um that I, I took a lot of personal energy from that right and um and that was an impetus then for continuing to be creative and you know sometimes it turned into you know sort of the pressure of we have to be creative to stay uh stay above water but but really at the heart the the good that those the, the good impetus was I want to continue to share the beauty, the discoveries, the flavors um, with um, people and that I'm excited about that. This episode is brought to you by Hot Dish Productions, an award-winning modern culinary production company specializing in creative digital video, photography, and podcast production. From concept through post-production, Hot Dish creates and produces compelling food stories that ignite the chef in all. Hot Dish Productions has deep connections to award-winning and celebrity chefs and over 20 years experience. Their team has won both a James Beard Award and an IACP Award for their work in food media. Hot Dish Productions delivers the highest quality product at a fair value. Let them help tell your culinary story today. Explore their work and learn more at hotdishproductions.com. So then you've been pouring your energy into your book. Yep. Uh, and it must it must feel great to have it finally be going out into the world after many it years of work. It does feel great. It's uh, you know, really, uh, yeah. It's a different timeline, of course, than producing a meal, right? <laughs> Yeah. You know, producing a dish yeah. in the kitchen, you know, even if there are, uh, you know, uh, some actions that need to happen, either fermentation or other sorts of things ahead of time, uh, you know, the dish doesn't take years necessarily to, to send out to the, to the end user. Mm -hmm. Totally. And, um, yeah. And, and, um, but I, I, 
I took certain things that I had learned in terms of how to work mm. um, in the kitchen, you know, whether it's your daily mise en place or um, or longer term projects and and applied it to the book. Um, you know, I had a I had a work list. I had a um, and uh, that was what I had it morphed, but it was basically these are the chapters that I want to write. And um, and there was a paragraph or a couple of loose sentences about what th that um, chapter was about. But then yeah. I um, but I didn't really know what the chapter was going to be and I couldn't um, lay it out. I, I'm not, it's not what the book is, or it's not the way that I worked as a writer or what, whatever. Some people know all that stuff. And, um, but, um, what was, so for me, then I would sit down and I, and I'd say, okay, I'm writing this chapter about leeks and potatoes. And the, the point of that chapter was, you know, in a certain way to say, this is what the green market looks like in March. <laughs> You know, right. um, and um, it's not just about um, the glory of peppers and eggplant and tomatoes and peaches and um, raspberries and all of that. And isn't it fabulous? You know, and every Instagram post is just, you know, the glory of it all. It's like, OK, what do you want to say about that rough moment? Um, and, um, you know, and. and uh, and, and, and also just to, to be clear, you know, it's just like, so at one time that, that time in the season, when it's about eggplant and peppers and peaches, um, it's all about, um, the freshest, the most fragile, um, ingredients that, that, uh, you need to cook now and do the least to, and maybe all you're doing is slicing them and, and sprinkling some salt and pepper on them. And that's the glory. We're in the moment. And this is the, the, the pit that it's peak ripeness. Right. It's so fleeting. Um, so fleeting. Right. And you go to the far extreme in March when what you're cooking is um, things that um, are all about, they're there because they're all about storage. Yep. Um, and, um, there's, there's nothing fleeting about it and the cooking that's required is, um, you know, longer cooking. It may, and it may be slow cooking, but it's, it's, it's about, I'm using the cooking techniques to make accessible or release the flavors, um, of something that, that by its very nature doesn't want to release it. It's it's <laughs> right. there in March available to me because the intelligence of the plant is about storage. Yeah. Um, yep. and, and, and so that's kind of like just that is kind of amazing to me, you know, to have that thought and go like, oh, that's brilliant, you know, brilliant from an evolutionary standpoint. And we humans have kind of you know, tricked the plant or figured it out or whatever. And so we can um, hold the potatoes in a storage, cold storage place and then bring them to market and um, uh, and access them so that we can eat them now. We didn't have to, you know, one of the things about um, a lot of animals um, and um, uh, and 
certain indigenous peoples is is that they followed the seasons, right? They yeah. they migrate, um, and so um, we figured out how not to migrate. And part of that is is that we figured out how to live off of the plants that um, store energy over a longer period of time. So I don't know. There's a long way of sort of talking about the leek and potato chapter, but yeah. what I was gonna what I was really talking about was is that. Um, I found my way as a writer mm. um, by uh, kind of improvising as I would in the kitchen over a recipe. I didn't know what I was going to end up with until I had it. And so like all these ideas that I've just been riffing with you about, I was riffing on the page until I went like, ah, okay, now let me um, cut and paste and rebuild. And, and now that I know the thread of the conversation, um, produce that in a way that that um, makes sense to the reader in terms of going like, oh yeah, potatoes aren't yeah. they amazing? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and and that makes that makes a whole that makes a ton of sense, and it, it sounds like it really. I mean, it also reflects the way you worked in the kitchen of of sort of gathering yeah, these things and, together and, and then so, reorienting them or or reframing them or putting them together in a slightly different order until you had the finished product. Yeah, and so I think. Or my hope is is that um, when you read the that chapter, for instance, that you'll feel my excitement mm. of making those connections. So it's not just like, oh, well, this is an academic study on, on you know, the uh, uh, the storage capacities of uh, the Solanaceae. You know, right. so it's kind of like <laughs> um, um, it's kind of like wow, you know, I love potatoes and I love cooking them in duck fat and why, but um, this is, this is sort of what's my discovery as a writer, as having this pandemic moment to really contemplate the potato. Yeah. And, and again, not to go on about potatoes, but that's one of many chapters and in, in which I kind of focused on these ingredients or this moment in the seasonal, the seasonal moment. And then, um, meditated on that and, and shared that thinking um, and backed it up with um, real science, but but again, real science that everybody can understand. Yeah, and I I have to say I, I also I mean as someone who lived in New York in the '90s and and early 2000s and saw a lot of change happen there, I also I mean I really appreciate a lot of the memoir stuff that you've included. Mm -hmm. um, I love at the end of the chapter about construction is cooking. Mm -hmm. That you include the very first ad that you placed. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> lo looking looking for employees um, right. at a time when you know this was a this was you know it was a print world. Like you yeah. know you couldn't look on Craigslist. You didn't have a phone. There was no internet to speak of, and so I just I want to read it because I love the ad. Oh the, yeah, the, please. The, it's it's such a. I mean, it is such a wonderful distillation of that moment in time in New York. I love that part of the chapter. Yeah, too. absolutely, and and down to it, including the fact that you don't even need to include an area code because everybody knew yeah. that it started yeah. with two one two. You didn't even need it. That's right. So the right. ad reads cooks. Two seasoned chefs opening 45-seat downtown restaurant. Food with guts and beauty. Experienced, which is shortened to EXP apostrophe D due to space limitations, I'm sure, in the paper and how much it cost. Uh, experienced line cook and entry position available. And then there's the phone number, which at the time was was the phone number at Savoy, I'm assuming, right? 219-8992? Yes. <clears throat> 
Uh, so, I mean, it, you know, that was a time when, like, you know, it did matter how many letters you put in, and that was going to change the cost because it would have pushed it to four lines instead of three sure. in the paper. Yeah. And so well, that was it, a you know so consideration was, it, it, when opening the business, I'm sure. Totally. And so the the fun thing about that aspect of the chapters is that I talk about, um, you know, that that it was there was a four line minimum. Um, and, um, and every, all the ads were that way. So that there are all these abbreviations that yep. now you, you only see in kind of crossword puzzles, right. as, you know, <laughs> um, w, you know, WPFL, you know, is working brick fireplace, yep. um, um, uh, with on, uh, 3RD, uh, WI, which is a, you know, a third floor walk up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and or w u yeah. um and uh you know all that stuff and we all became completely comfortable with those acronyms um because everybody was trying to and and it cost two this is at the time this is in 1990 it cost 200 dollars to run that four line ad <laughs> in the sunday paper only right right, right? it got printed and, for one day one day, everybody <laughs> knew to buy the Sunday paper if you were, you know, looking for a job. Yep. Um, and uh, but, uh, you know, you compare that with I don't know what the the price is now, but most of the most of the years that we were using Craigslist, it was twenty five dollars for a posting with unlimited space. Right. You know, you could you could upload the menu, pictures <laughs> of the restaurant. Yeah. There was a map with a location of where you were. Um, you know, you could go on and on, um, about your place and it was 25 bucks and you could, you know, post it as many times as you wanted. I mean, for me, so, it was a real trip down memory lane because I remember going to brunch in my early twenties in the nineties on Sunday morning with friends. And we each had a copy of the paper and we were sitting yeah. there yeah. circling ads and saying, Oh, did you, this might be good for you. And this might be yeah. a good job for you. And you should call this one. It was really like, I have a yeah. very clear memory of that. Yeah. And, and what it became as well, you know, I mean, eater didn't exist. And so that on a certain level, the, the Sunday one ad section, and as you said, we all got it over brunch, was it was the community newsletter. Mm. Oh, you know, right. Alf, Alfred's about to, um, you know, expand and, and he's looking for people. And so then that's part of the buzz of what's happening in the food world. Is sure. that, um, you know, some new chef is uh, opening a spot. So in that ad, um, you know, where did you come up with the term food with guts and beauty? Mm, thanks for asking, Harry. Um, I don't know, hmm. but it, um, it, it really is the, um, I mean, I had, I'll just tell you, I wanted to name the book food with guts and beauty hmm. and, um, because I felt like it really was the distillation of what I wanted to communicate and have really been trying to communicate for many years that I wasn't, there's both, I mean, the guts is on one hand, you could say, you know, it's about serving awful. Um, sure. um, and, but it's about, we're not hiding, we're not hiding the process of cooking. And so you right. could see the kitchen, but we're also not trying to, turn the food into something that it isn't. Um, you know, 
And that part comes from my time in Japan in that what I was really moved by in Japanese cuisine and the Japanese aesthetic was they weren't, um, you know, the French do all kinds of cutouts. They, you know, they, they cut their little brunoise and then they had the little cutters where they make <clears throat> crescent moons out of carrots and decorate them on the plate and all of that. And that was so not me. Um, or dots on the plate in concentric circles, you know, and, and edging lines and stuff like that. The Japanese are all about showing nature on the plate, yep. you know, so that the, the, the tops of a turnip or the, um, or the little root bottom of the, of the turnip, they, they cherish that they retain that they want to remind you that this is food that came out of the earth came out of the soil um and so those kinds of um aesthetic decisions like i said you know taking the time to wash the um to to not just cut off all the the turnip tops and 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 yet retain them and get the dirt out of it and cook them just so so that you could see the lime green of it uh, the early chlorophyll um that all that was part of what we were going to um share with our diners and so that's the, the guts and the beauty you yeah. know um the the awe of nature as presented on the plate absolutely i mean i, I also like to i mean I, I would i would like to to offer an interpretation of the guts as well to a little bit in the way that you presented um some other things later uh with your restaurant uh you know like your passover meals that uh, uh, sort of traveled around based on influence, based on U.S. foreign policy. Yes. Uh, um, you know, specifically, uh, uh, sort of, you know, you, you spent a number of years identifying places that the, uh, the government was uh, sort of against, uh, you know, as far as uh, yeah, Yemen, who, Afghanistan, Iran, had, Iraq. That, that we had vilified, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, Can you talk uh, a little bit about that sort of as a, sure. how, how did that come about? Uh, and I, you know, and, and I, I have to say, I really, um, I, I appreciate that you were using your, your, your pulpit, so to speak, uh, you know, to, to really talk about these things from, from the restaurant kitchen. I, I feel like there is often uh, not enough uh, not enough people engage in that. I mean, they have a restaurant, they have their menu, they just kind of do their thing and, and they stay out of politics. Yeah. Again, thank you for noticing that and appreciating that. I mean, it really um, became uh, another fundamental principle of who I was and what the restaurant was and, and important. <clears throat> um, because I, I do think that, that lots of, uh, <clears throat> restaurants or restaurateurs or chefs just want to say, I'm just, I'm just cooking my food. Um, and, uh, you know, and so the, the wandering into, uh, into the political realm, um, you know, took time. I mean, and there was pushback. I mean, and there mm. were, there was, there were times where, um, you know, when we were, First of all, I mean, you know, so like I got very involved with an organization called Chefs Collaborative. Um, we were termed eco chefs and um, and uh, kind of told that that we were kind of a being too high and mighty and that it's just like 
just cook the food, you know, um, and that's all that people really want. They just we're here to um, show people a good time and um, don't get heavy, you know, and that getting heavy in terms of what what's the story behind our food is um, antithetical to um, let's party and have a good time. And that's what the restaurants, that's what restaurants are here to do. Well, mm-hmm. I, I didn't feel that. I always felt like my restaurant could be, should be um, on some level, a force for, um, for change. And, um, um, and then, you know, and so that got complicated. Um, <clears throat> um, and, you know, back to the idea about who comes to your restaurant and it's self-selective. It's just like, the people who want to um, be um, doted on and pay high prices for exclusive ingredients and exclusive experiences, they didn't like my restaurant, and um, <laughs> and that's okay. Sure. Um, but I also didn't like um, get that attention or charge those prices, and therefore make that money that comes with that kind of experience. So Passover. Um, You know, so I started out, you know, quickly the Passover thing happened because um, I wanted to stay open for Passover and um, um, but it still hurt my heart that I wasn't celebrating the holiday. So we kind of Mm. threw it together over staff meal. And then I was sort of doing a quick Haggadah, you know, in the 20 minutes that or 30 minutes that staff meal is. And someone said, you should do this you right. know, for real. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. And it took us a couple of years and sure. then we did it. And then, um, and I was like, well, what am I going to do? And I was like, I'm not doing matzo balls and, right. um, and brisket. Um, and I realized that here I was cooking the food of the Mediterranean and, and I was like, oh, well, there's the Sephardic Jews. I don't know anything about Sephardic cooking. And mm. so it became this wonderful journey for me to learn um, about the traditional foods of the Sephardic um, world. And so I started serving that. And, and um, you know, it, it started out as being just kind of pan-Mediterranean. I, you know, I did a little Moroccan dish combined with a <clears throat> Greek or Turkish dish and you know, and then that, those were the early years. And then I started to focus in on, oh, let me just hop around and, and dive deeper into particular cuisines. And then, of course, um, I think the first year was uh, uh, the year that uh, I get lost in time uh, that uh, we of uh, the the Iraqi war the first right Iraqi yeah you write in the book um, that it was passover 2003 just after the that Iraqi that's what invasion. was coming thank you yeah. um and so i was like i remember standing in the kitchen listening to the radio where um you know <clears throat> there's all we're shooting all these bombs yep. um into it and it's like what are we doing what are we doing um and then i was like okay what are we gonna you know, what cuisine am I going to do for Passover this year? And I was like, yeah, we're going to cook the food of the people we're bombing. Yeah. Now, of course, most Jews had left mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> because, um, you know, because of all the um, Arab Jewish um, uh, conflict over the years, starting in the 60s. Yeah. But that remains these people, these cuisines, these people, 
some of them still live there. Um, that is their um, their heritage and their homeland. And um, I I wanted to remember. I wanted to make sure that everybody was remembering that um, the act of a government, whether it's the U.S. government or the government of another country, that we're um, demonizing Iraq in this case. Um, isn't necessarily the, the view of the people themselves, mm, right? So mm. that I don't agree with the, the politics of my president sometimes, um, and therefore they, those people may not yeah. um, agree with the politics of their president. And so then it's like, well, let's eat their food. Let's, let's, let's get into their head in a certain way and go, um, <clears throat> you know, um, that famous important turning point line in in the telling of the Passover story when um, uh, uh, the Jews after the Red Sea floods back over and drowns the Egyptian troops, God says, hold it, don't be celebrating because um, I drowned those people. Are not these my people too? Mm -hmm. And um, And so it's important for us to remember that we are all one people on this planet and um these people these are my people too and we have to work towards understanding that or being able to really own that um and let's start by doing that by eating the delicious foods of the culture of somebody who we don't really understand yet yeah. I mean, I, I, I have to say I'm, I'm absolutely blown away by this and want to incorporate this as well, because as you say, uh, in, in, in the book, you know, you grew up Jewish heavy on the ish and, mm -hmm. you know, I feel the same way, but we always had Passover and I always had, you know, grandma's brisket or great grandma's brisket, which it turns out came off the back of the Lipton onion soup package. I found out years later, yeah. but it's still grandma's brisket <laughs> in my personal canon. It's delicious. Um, mm -hmm. You know, but, uh, you know, this makes me think last year during COVID, um, right after, uh, right after Passover was when uh, things sort of heated up around uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and, and the Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter movement. And I ended up on a group text with a number of, a number of people, some of whom I knew well and some I didn't. And somebody on that text chain made some sort of a, you know, quite racist comment and, and I happened to know that the person who made, I mean, I was an acquaintance, but I happened to know that they were Jewish. And I said, look, we just had Passover. And we just like retold the story of people being free and, you know, not, you know, of, of, being, of needing to kind of like celebrate that we are all of one people and the idea of inviting people to your table if they're hungry. I mean, like this, we just talked about all of this stuff. How can you say that? And so for me, what this, this makes me consider is that I think, you know, in future years, I, I want to take some of this idea of yours and whether it be about, uh, you know, related to foreign policy or places that we as a country are bombing that we don't agree with, or whether it's about cooking, you know, traditional food of black Americans, uh, you know, mm -hmm. for Passover and using that as a way to talk about that with my family and with my children, uh, you know, yeah, it's really please. powerful. I run with it. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's that's great. I'm glad that inspired you. Um, you know, and that's what I loved about you know you about that opportunity that I had in the restaurant, and that was to share my thinking um, implicitly and explicitly, mm -hmm. and um, and 
people came to love that. I mean, I sort of had the dinner series and um, that was sort of adjunct to um, the Passover kind of thing. It grew out of that. Um, but it, it was a time to um, be conscious about what our choices were and discuss it and, and make both make clear to interested customers what that was all about um, and use it as an opportunity to dive deeper into the issues and learn about them um, because there's so much that we didn't know and that we still don't know and um, and that that only happens when you um, when you choose to to dive into it to study it and um, and so I used the restaurant as my educational tool um, mm. and uh, um, that was I felt grateful that um, I had this you know, that that was my laboratory for exploration and study. Um, you know, again, it, that wasn't always, um, you know, um, it didn't always produce the greatest profits and the greatest efficiency, but, um, but, <laughs> you know, my, I, I made money there for 25 years. So I think that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah that's pretty yeah. good. So I wanted to ask you as, as we as we sort of uh, you know come come close to a, a, an ending point here. What sure? What's next? I mean, I am I imagine you have more than one book uh, in you. Uh, I don't know if there's another book in the works or if you're doing a book tour uh, for this one. Well, um, yeah. Thanks for asking. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. I I for a long time I always just felt like this is it. This is my um, I'm, I'm pouring everything that I know into this um, single document, and um, and there is no book after that. And then and then and then all of a sudden, I mean, there's two parts. You have to pare back the um, um, the undertaking so that it's not a 500 page book, um, sure. you know. <laughs> um, but but also beginning to to see the possibility of what, um, what another project might be. And so I'm hoping actually that, that part of what happens this summer is that as I'm on book tour, because I think that people are ready to gather again and be outside, mm -hmm. it may not be inside bookstores, but it might be in the, on the patios of restaurants or, um, in some public places where again, we're not sitting down to a formal, um, uh, dinner series type meal, but a cocktail party and a conversation like the one we've just been having in shorter term. Yep. Um, um, but so I'm hoping to go around the country. Um, I'm going to be up in Maine um, and um, uh, up in the, uh, the Midwest, sort of Chicago, Madison, Spring Green, um, and maybe um, um, uh, further up. And so I, I have people i have ingredients that i'm interested in um learning more about and hoping that i'll sort of combine those trips nice. um the, the book tour trips with kind of deeper dive into those ingredients with the hope of writing the next chapters um of that part of a second book so that's what's going on my website peterhoffmancooks.com is going live in the next day or two um, and so all my events, book tour and, and uh, uh, other projects will be uh, available there, peterhoffmancooks.com. Nice. Uh, um, 
And I wanted to also yep. ask, you had mentioned previously to me uh, before this interview about a Spanish festival that you're interested in reproducing. Is that on the... Well, that's that's in the book. I mean, that's the calzotada that yeah. um, I did for many years. Um, that's the Spring Leak Festival that um, where, where they 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 grill over wintered over leeks um, that start beginning as the as the days are getting longer, but it's still kind of chilly out, um, and you eat them by uh, dipping, holding the the leeks in your hands, dipping them in romesco sauce. And eating, you know, utensil free, um, <clears throat> and then it moves on to sort of grilled lamb and um, white beans and botifarra sausage and lots of wine stuff like that. So I I ran that festival at the restaurant mm. for many many years, um, and they were, um, you know, really bacchanalian um, uh, events. Um, everybody got drunk, and um, there was dancing, and um, I would hire um uh flamenco guitarists to add to the experience and um so um you know that i even after i closed the restaurant i i did one out at um uh the white hotel mm. as to to recreate it and there's a place where um that festival wants to live on and um that i can continue to do that um you should so, take it to uh, Japan. I would, uh, have it, oh, having wow. seen lots of uh, overwintered uh, alliums uh, in Japan, I think that would be a really neat place to kind huh, of put those things huh, together. Yeah, yeah. They, I mean, right. That, that that's what they do with those leaks, where they, the that that long, long leak that has so much white on it. It's all about pushing the soil up against it and right. um, and letting it grow slowly with. Um, good sun, but um, non-freezing temperatures, and um, yeah, it's a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll have to recreate the festival here for myself too, because sadly I missed it in the years that it was happening at the restaurant. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, well, thank you, Peter. It has been a, a pleasure and an honor uh, to get to chat with you today. Well, it's been great talking to you, Harry, and and um, you know, you really understood you know, you understood what, what's in the book and what some of the deeper implications of it are. And, and, uh, and I feel honored that, um, you connected to all of that. So, um, um, you know, what's good is a, is a wonderful read and I think it, it moved you and I think it'll move lots of, um, readers as well. So thanks for taking the time with me today. Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can follow what Peter is up to on social media at Peter Hoffman, NYC, or you might find him at the Union Square Green Market, which he frequents. And please check out PeterHoffmanCooks.com for updates on his book tour, events, and future projects from one of the pioneers of what we now call farm-to-table cuisine. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at HeritageRadioNetwork.org, on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can find me on email, Harry at TheBrooklynKitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram, at TheFoodBaller. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter and to your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.